from the very first moment that we open up our scriptures, we are confronted by a God who brings order out of disorder. The opening lines of our scripture says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, but it says that the earth was without form and the earth was void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the water. Now, according to a, a Hebrew worldview, water is always symbolic of, of chaos. Water is disordered and it's untamable by human effort. But as we read a little bit further, we see that God begins to deliberately and skillfully take this unformed and disordered mass of creation and begins to order it into something that is beautiful, something that is finely tuned, and something that is good. In fact, God is going to go on and call it very good. A little bit ago, I read a short collect. A collect is a short prayer that sums up the theme for the day. And the collect that I prayed went like this. It said, Grant, O Lord, that the course of this world may be so peaceably ordered in your providence that your church may serve you joyfully in all godly quietness and peace. See, I think that collect points to the theme that runs throughout all of our scriptures that we read just a little bit ago. And that theme is that God is a God of order. And God is a God who overcomes those things that lead to disorder, both in the world and even in our lives. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, he'll go on to tell us eventually that, that God is not a God of disorder, but God is a God of peace. In James chapter 3, we're encouraged. It says that for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But he contrasts that with, he says, that the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure and then peaceable. And he says that a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace are sown by those who make for peace. Notice this. Chaos and disorder are two sides of the same coin. But we contrast that with, or with order because order leads to peace. See, we pray that God would peaceably order all things so that we might serve him in peace. Now, according to the scriptures, the idea of peace is not just absence of violence. Peace is way more than that. You see, peace is the idea that everything is complete, that everything is rightly ordered, and violence and hatred and all the other things only arise in a state of disorder. But true peace is that Things are so rightly ordered that things like violence, it's not even an option within the picture. It's best summed up in the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is the word that we translate in Hebrew as peace, but it means, again, that things are all rightly ordered, and in particularly that our relationships are rightly ordered, that our relationship with God is rightly ordered, and therefore our relationships with each other are rightly ordered. And so I believe that this understanding of peace and shalom, I want to suggest to you this morning that this is a foundational building block for our discipleship and for our walk with Jesus. And so I think it's only right that we explore this theme as it's presented in our scriptures today. Last week, we talked a little bit about this, that we are now in a new liturgical season, Right, we're, uh, we are a couple Sundays into what we call the season after Pentecost, or more commonly it's called ordinary time. We're in ordinary time. 
Ordinary time is the longest season on the church calendar, and it's different and set apart from all the other more extraordinary times, if you think about it, like Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter, which are all full of high celebrations and high holidays. But in ordinary time, what we do is we, we, we kind of come down off of the mountain, if you will, and we enter back into the mundane. And as I suggested last week, that that's a good thing because it's in the mundane things of life that growth happens. Growth is slow. Growth is sometimes arduous. But it's growth nonetheless. So we're in a season of growth. That's why, we have a, that's why our colors now are green for the rest of the year. In ordinary time, what we do is we go on a journey with Jesus and we walk with him and we meditate on his life. And the goal... The goal of that is the ordering and reordering of our life according to Jesus's life so that we can live the way that Jesus lived and we can see the world the way that Jesus saw the world and so that we can love the way that Jesus loved. The word ordinary comes from the word ordinal, which means direction. Again, the goal is to recalibrate and order our lives according to Jesus's life because only Jesus can give direction to our lives. Our God is a God of peace, not disorder, and he calls us to be a people of peace, but we can only do that if our lives are rightly ordered according to the life of the Prince of Peace. But in the process of ordering our lives according to Christ, we want to be mindful of the very things that lead to chaos and that lead to disorder. Now, we know that we live in a very disordered world. You don't have to look too hard to know that things are not set right. You don't have to look too hard to see that our world really is a mess. We also don't have to be awake for too long to be reminded that disorder still lives in our own lives. See, physical and spiritual entropy are very real forces in the world. They're very real forces in the world. And it, because we know this because the moment that we might find even a little bit of peace, even a little bit of order in our lives is the very moment that these worldly entropies begin pulling on us from the outside and begin pulling on us from even the deepest parts of our soul, trying to move us back into a state of disorder and chaos. That battle just kind of always seems to be there, doesn't it? Our Old Testament reading that we read just a little bit ago explicitly draws us back to the origin of this disorder. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent into eating a fruit from a tree that God had told them not to eat from. The serpent tempts them by calling into question God's very words, and he tempts them by calling into question God's very goodness. He questions whether God himself has deceived the man and wife, saying that maybe God is withholding something good from them. And so they believe and they say, yeah, that's probably right. And so they eat from the tree and what happens? Their eyes are opened and they realize that they're naked and exposed. They become afraid and they try to remedy the situation themselves. Now our reading this morning picks up in verse 8 when all of a sudden we hear God walking in the garden. And it says God is coming to them in the cool of the day. Now that phrase isn't just a reference to the time of day. The, the phrase 
is a reference that denotes that there is still, tra- there's still tranquility, that goodness still exists in the world, but something's gone wrong, hasn't it? You see, Adam and Eve are afraid, and they run and hide because the relationship that was once in perfect order has now been disrupted. They are exposed and they are afraid because they had believed the lie that God was not enough for them. They had believed the lie that they could find life and they could find fulfillment elsewhere, outside of God's word. The problem is, is that only led to shame and to guilt and eventually even to death. Moreover, when God comes to confront them, they decide not to own up to their own sin, right? Adam blames Eve, then blames God for giving him Eve, and then she says, hey, don't look at me. It was the serpent's fault. And humanity has been shifting the blame of our own sinful behavior to someone else and something else ever since, have we not? What I want to suggest is that the story of the fall is the story of what happens when the human heart tries to secure its own existence and tries to search for its own meaning and its own goodness and even love in something outside of God and outside of God's purposes. And when that happens, disorder enters into the shalom that God has provided. You see, the fall, in the fall, disorder enters into our relationships with God and our relationships with each other And let me also suggest that it also enters into our very souls, our relationships with ourselves. All you have to do is just keep reading the Old Testament a little bit more to see just how quickly and chaotic and violent the world becomes. Now, Genesis chapter 3 is a very dark chapter, but I love it because it's more than just a chapter on consequences and disorder. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 is a chapter about hope. It's a chapter about hope. Because we know that God is not a God of disorder, and so therefore God's not going to let sin and chaos have the final word in his creation. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that God will have the final word over the one who deceives humanity, over sin itself, and eventually over death, which is the consequences of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 particularly, God says to the serpent, he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelion or translated into the first gospel. So it's called the first gospel. See, this is the first time in Scripture that God promises that he will once again set things right and that he will do it through sending an offspring of Eve who will come and destroy the one who is intent on deceiving humanity and causing chaos in God's creation. This is the first time that Scripture speaks about Jesus. It's the first time that God begins to reveal his plan to send Christ into the world and to die on the cross, taking on the consequences of sin upon himself and through his resurrection, overcoming the powers of evil, Satan, and death. That's how God brings order out of chaos. He does it on the cross. That, and it's on the cross that the kingdom of God is inaugurated and the process of bringing in the new creation begins. You see, don't miss this. 
God doesn't just wipe the slate clean and make new things. God is intent on making all things new. God is a God who makes all things new. And Genesis chapter 3 shows us that even in humanity's darkest hours, and even in the, the darkest hours of our own soul, when the world is in chaos and our sins are bearing down on us, that we know that there is still hope. We know that there is still hope. We also see this in Psalm 130, the psalm that we read just a minute ago. In Psalm 130, we encounter a very personal and poetic expression of this type of hope within the midst of disorder and chaos. In verse 1 and 2, the psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let my ears be attentive, or let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. You see here, the psalmist takes a posture that's different from Adam and Eve. The psalmist isn't blaming their sin on someone else or on something else. No, the psalmist, this is a particular cry, and it's a cry for help for out of the depths of a soul that knows its own sin, that knows its own darkness, that knows its own chaos, and knows that it needs to be rescued. This is a cry, but it is not a cry of despair. It's a cry for mercy, but it's based on a prior promise and a trust in the one who made the promise, which again is a very different posture than the one that Adam and Eve took. You see, he goes on, he says, my soul waits for the Lord. My soul, and in his word, I hope. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. See, the psalmist recalls the words of God and he believes them. And he believes that God will bring deliverance and and redemption. And the cry comes from a place of hope and trust that God will make good on his promise. And so the psalmist can wait for it intently. More than the watchman for the morning, he says. That's a great illustration. You see, a, a watchman is a soldier who stands guard at the city gates during the night. But it's always at night that a city is most vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. It's always at night. You see, it's under the cover of darkness that the enemy has a military advantage, if you will. And so watchmen know that the sun will rise eventually. They know that, but they long for the sun to rise because when it finally happens, then it sheds light on their enemy and their enemy is exposed. The morning light provides a type of protection and even a deliverance. And so our psalmist, he says he longs for the eternal light of deliverance way more than a night guard longs for the light of the morning sun. I wonder if you know that longing because it's actually the longing really of every human heart and every human soul. It reminds me of St. Augustine's words where he says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Both of these Old Testament passages point us to the causes of disorder. The first is Satan, and second is the subsequent sin in our lives. We do have a true enemy. Satan is a a deceiver, and it's a deceiver who deceived our first parents, which set the whole human race on a path towards hatred and violence and sin and evil. In other words, a path path towards disorder. And it was because of him and his lies 
that shalom was broken. And it was kind of like a loose thread that when you pull it, a whole garment begins to unravel. Paul will say in Romans 1, he'll say, for although humanity knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but their foolish hearts became darkened and they became futile in their thinking. And it goes on to say that God ended up giving them over to the lusts of their hearts. Because of our enemy's lies, humanity has also become disordered. And our enemy continues to exploit that even to this day, even to today. But again, God is not a God of disorder, right? God is not going to let disorder have the last word. And so we remember that in the midst of chaos, there is still hope. In Mark chapter 3, the gospel reading that we read just a moment ago, we see the beginning of how God begins to put things back in order. In verse 20 of Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus enter a house with his disciples, and when he enters in, a large crowd gathers, and it, and it fills the house. It's so full he can't even eat. In verse 32, it says that the crowds were sitting around Jesus. In other words, that they were, they were focused on Jesus. They were ready to receive from Jesus all that he had to give to them. Now, I want you to contrast that posture with the posture of the other two groups in our gospel reading this morning. You have Jesus' family who thinks that Jesus is out of his mind, and then you have the scribes, right? You have this group of scribes, and scribes are the authorities of the law, and they come into town and they they try to discredit Jesus, right? Claiming that Jesus' power comes from Satan himself. Now, according to the scribes, they have to acknowledge that all the miracles, all the signs and wonders of healing and of casting out demons, they've got to acknowledge that they are very real, that they are from some type of supernatural origin, right? But the problem for the scribes is that if they acknowledge that Jesus' power comes from God, then they would also have to acknowledge that God himself was at work in Jesus' life. And that would have consequences for their own life. Instead, though, they decided to reason that Jesus was under the power of the prince of demons. Really, it's just a tactic to try to explain away Jesus' influence and attempt for them to try to keep the status quo. But Jesus then goes on to appeal to them. And he says, a house divided could never stand. Because, you see, Satan's whole MO, if you will, is to bring disorder and chaos. And Jesus is saying that, that in casting out demons from the people, he's pointing that, that casting out demons from people is actually a work of restoration. It's a restorative work that brings order and healing to the lives of demon-possessed people. And why would the prince of disorder want that to happen? It doesn't make logical sense. And so, in fact, Jesus then presses them even more. And in doing so, he points them to a larger picture, and he points them to even his own work in God's restoration of all things. Verse 27 of chapter 3, he says this. He tells this short parable. He says, no one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods without first binding the strong man, and then he is free to plunder his house. So what Jesus is saying is that in this particular parable, the way it's traditionally translated is Jesus is saying that, he, that uh, the strong man is Satan, 
and that Jesus is the one and only one who can bind him and immobilize all of Satan's works. And therefore, it is only Jesus who can, quote, plunder his house. Now, the question for us is, what in the world would be in the strong man's house that would be worthy of plundering? Well, let me suggest to you, let me suggest to you that it's humans, that it's us, because we are held captive by our own sin and by the deceiver, and it's Jesus who sets us free. You see, in fact, his miracles of healing and of exorcism, those are signs that point to the fact that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of order, is now present, and his work of setting prisoners free and restoring shalom, that has begun, and there's nothing that Satan can do about it. See, most biblical scholars believe that Jesus is pointing his, the crowds back to the first gospel, back to the proto-evangelion of, of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, with this illustration because he's showing that he is the one who has come to crush the head of the strong man, come to crush the head of the snake, and thereby defeating the powers of Satan and evil and all the things that lead humanity into disorder. He's saying that Jesus has come to set things right. And Jesus ultimately accomplishes this on his cross when the powers of evil and sin are dealt a decisive blow, and also in the resurrection, when the wages of sin, which is death, is overcome. The strong man is bound and the captives are brought out into new life. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians says that this forms the foundation for all of Christian life, that the resurrection and that the truth of that forms the foundation of all discipleship. He goes on and he says that, Knowing that Jesus, who was raised from the dead, will also raise us from the dead. Therefore, we do not lose hope. We do not lose hope because we have hope in Jesus' resurrection. And so even there, in, in a, even though there is still disorder in the world, the world is wasting away, he says. And those who are set free, says, are being renewed daily are being set back right in right order. We're being renewed. That's verse 16 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And it's only because of this and because of the resurrection that Paul tells us that we have hope that one day Christ will return and finish his work of, of reordering and restoration that he started. But until then, we still live in a world that is disordered and we still feel that disorder daily even in our own lives. And so the question then for us today is how do we navigate that? How do we navigate that? And I want to suggest that I think that the end of Mark chapter 3 points us at least to the starting point of the answer to that question. See, in verse 34, after being told that Jesus' family is outside and they want him to come out, Jesus looks around at all of those who are sitting with him, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. He goes on, he says, for whoever does the will of God, they are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. God's reordering of the world begins with the restoration of shalom, the restoration of right relationships. Remember in the fall, the main cause of disorder is that our, there was a disruption in our relationship with God and with each other. And here Jesus points out that he is restoring both, that he is restoring both. He's redefined our relationships with each other. There is no deeper relationship in life than family relationships, and Jesus has just 
redefined and reconstituted what it means to be a family. And what that means is to be ordered around the will of God and to be ordered around God's purposes. Of course, that raises the question, what is the will of God, right? Well, let me briefly explain that sometimes we, we, make, we make it too complicated. See, the will of God is that all things would be rightly ordered towards Christ and that Christ would be preeminent among all things. That the will of God is that we also would be ordered towards Christ and towards his kingdom because it's only in Christ and in the kingdom of God that we can find true shalom. But you see, too often when we think about the will of God, we only think about it in terms of our own personal life. A lot of times we ask What's the will of God for my life? It's not necessarily a bad question, but the problem is, is that we only think of it in terms of, of who am I going to marry? What house am I going to buy? What's the will of God in my job? Now again, these are important questions, but they're only of a secondary focus, I want to suggest. They're only of a secondary focus, and when we only think about the will of God as the will of God for my life as primary, then let me suggest that it throws everything else into disorder. You see, Jesus said this. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you because your heavenly father who is good, he knows that you need them. But when we only focus first on all of these other things, then friends, what we're doing is we're listening and we start begin to worry about all of these other things What we're doing is we're listening to the same lie that Adam and Eve listened to in the garden, that maybe God is withholding some good thing from me, that, and when we believe that God is withholding some good thing from us, then disorder enters in, and we get confused, and we get discontented. It's kind of like Peter walking on the water. You know the scene where Jesus is walking on the water. He calls Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water with him. But there's this massive storm raging all around him. Well, when all the distractions and all the chaos in the midst of life gets too much for Peter to bear, he begins to look at all of those things. And what happens? He begins to sink. But when he begins to sink, what does he do? He cries out, Lord, save me. Those are his words. He cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down and he picks it up. And what I want to suggest to you that in the midst of a disordered world, that that's the cry, that that's the cry for for us to be crying out to the Lord, that I believe that that's the cry of our psalmist in Psalm 130. That's a cry from out of the depths, Lord, save me. So when the world is is in chaos, we can cry out, Lord, save me. When when Satan is telling us lies and we're being tempted and we're feeling the disorder of sin, we can cry out, Lord, save me. And when we feel discontented, we feel that that maybe there's something else out there for us, we can cry out, Lord, save me. That's a cry from the depths of the soul. The theologian Karl Barth once said this. He said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. So one of my favorite quotes from, from Karl Barth. It's like prayer is this protest against the world's disorder because what it does is it refocuses us on God who is the God who brings order out of chaos. And it refocuses our attention on Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. 
God is a God of order. God is a God of peace. And the call is for us to center our lives around Jesus. And his cross and in his resurrection is the beginning of a world being made new. Friends, my call to you and encouragement to you this morning is that our lives would always be centered and always focused on the God who brings order out of chaos. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.